You're in front of a mirror, right? Yeah, I've got one right next to me. Say it. Say what? Say it, Jeremy. Dude, literally, you have a mirror in front of you. You know what we're talking about. Say it. Come on, man. You're going to make fun of me if I don't, aren't you? The entire episode, literally. And our listeners, yeah, they they probably will too, man. Just fucking say it. Fine. Candyman. 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 Candyman! You're listening to a Brain Stew Fresh Fright Review. Welcome, all you gore hounds, to a brand new Brain Stew Fresh Frights review. I'm Justin. And I am Jeremy. And on this episode, we'll be discussing the new sequel to the well regarded and highly praised 90s horror classic Candyman. We also have, well, we did have more in store in terms of stories from Jeremy, so be prepped for that. But. I just wanted to take the time, Jeremy, and immediately thank Universal for giving us the opportunity to sponsor the advanced screening of Candyman a few weeks back, and for that gigantic box of swag that they mailed me with t-shirts and theatrical posters and those tiny little mirrors that were really cool, but no one really understood when I gave them out. They're like, "Uh, what's the mirror for? And I'm like, like, what the fuck is this? Dude, you know, like... Candyman, like you look in the mirror, you know? Oh, yeah, sweet. And they just like would put it down. But you were actually able to attend that screening, dude. How was it? Dude, yeah, it was it was amazing. So Universal, thank you so much. Um it was really, really fucking cool, man. Um I mean it was completely packed to the brim, man. Like there there was not an empty seat in the entire theater. Um people were just smiling, you know, ear to ear. Everyone was so excited to see this movie. Um, in, in the lobby, you could hear people talking about their favorite parts from the original. I mean, it was just absolute excitement. Um, you know, I believe that there were some some studio people there. They had security there. They were like, listen, if you're afraid of the Candyman in the mirror, you should be afraid of pulling your fucking, <laughs> for pulling your fucking yeah. cell phone out because we're going to kick your ass out if you do that. Like, there will be no, like, warnings. Like, you pull your phone out, you're out. Um, and... They, they, meant, they meant that shit. I Dude, that's uh, yeah, that's so. one of the best things about doing these advanced screenings than they have security on hand is that you know that most likely no one's going to ruin the movie for you or for the rest of the audience because yeah. they're there to keep people in check. Um, so that's fantastic. But dude, yeah, no, it was, it was, it was, it was amazing, man. The best part, I gotta, t- I yeah, gotta tell no, you, yeah, no, I know, not, 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 not the best part. <laughs> you know, the movie would be the best part, but the second best part was. Uh, 
my, my buddy Bruce Rose, he uh, he showed up to the screening as well. Uh, Universal gave us some extra tickets to give out, so I was able to, you know, not only give some to you know fans from from the podcast, but also, you know, my buddy Bruce uh, hooked him up. And so, <laughs> as I was in line to get popcorn, he was like, "Dude, you got to order a large popcorn." I was like, "Yeah, I'm gonna order a large popcorn." He was like, "No, when you do, they give you a Terminator Dark Fate tin bucket." <laughs> oh, dude, no shit. I was shit. like, "What?" And you know, you know how much I love that movie. Me too, like, man. I love that franchise. Yeah, we're yeah. defenders of that movie, so a- absolutely. And the be- you know, what's cool is that uh, I had been watching <laughs> that same bucket on eBay because I own like pretty much almost every piece of advertising from Terminator Dark Fate. So of course, I have like in my watched list. It's like Terminator bucket for pop. Dude, don't you have you don't know? you have the life size Linda Hamilton, Sarah Connor, and Arnold from that movie? And Arnold from the movie, I've got, I mean, I've got advertisement from, like, Best Buy uh, that I purchased on eBay. Like, I, dude, I've got f- Subway banners. I've got all the posters. Um, I've even got posters from uh, the Arclight Theater that were, like, limited to that theater in, in L.A. I had a buddy that sent me some of those. I mean, dude, I have, like, seriously every piece of advertising for that movie. Uh, so, you know, thanks to the Candyman screening, I, I didn't have to buy a $30, 10 bucket of popcorn off eBay. I got it, you know, for... Eight bucks or whatever a thing of popcorn costs. So that was that was. I think rad. the only piece of memorabilia you don't have from Terminator Dark Fate is Arnold Schwarzenegger himself in a cage in your fucking basement. I tried, <laughs> man. He's he's a quick one, dude. He's a quick one. But that's amazing, dude. Fantastic and right on on that Terminator Dark Fate popcorn pail, man. Like I yeah. mean, I used to get those yeah. through the theater. Remember when I got a bunch from the Predator and nobody wanted them. That I was, I did like a giveaway on the podcast, like, yo, you'll get like predator swag, and like one person replied. I was like, damn, you're like, damn it, they're, that ugly because they were like that ugly motherfucker can't sell anymore. I don't know, man. They're doing that, no, nope. straight to whatever they're doing. Hulu, I think they're doing straight to Hulu predator movie. I know you're pumped for it, but skulls. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know it was straight to Hulu. Yeah, like, yeah, kinda... it's well, it's straight to something. I think it's Hulu, but it's not. It, apparently, it's not getting theatrical. Much like Dude, we do. You know yeah. what? Yeah, like that's becoming such a norm. Like it was just announced that the new Texas Chainsaw exactly. Massacre is is going uh, to directly to Netflix. Which, like, dude, that makes two Texas Chainsaw movies in a row that did not get a theatrical release. Did Texas Chainsaw 3D completely kill the franchise for theater releases? I mean, well, I didn't. Actually, I didn't actually go out to see that one, which is. See? I, but I usually would have. I mean, I remember when you know the the remake came out. Marcus Nispel's remake. I loved it. And, and it's fucking and amazing. And I actually really enjoyed the prequel, you know, to an extent and everything like that. But after that, I was kind of like, eh, it's fine. Um, This is something that has to be discussed, though. Is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? Um, I think in a sense, Netflix shelling out for it is a good thing. And it also means that everyone's going to be able to watch it. And I'm sure it'll be on the charts for like the weekend yeah. of release. It'll probably be in the top 10. And- and the studio probably already got their budget back from the deal of selling it to Netflix. So that's a good thing for horror. At least, no matter what happens with this thing, it's not going to bomb and be a, a financial disaster. Um, but what sucks is that our, you know, our, our legendary horror icons, like, you know, diehards like us, we want to see them on the big screen. We want to see Leatherface. We want to see Jason. We want to see, you know, Freddy, Pinhead. And, I mean, shit, we haven't seen a Pinhead in theaters since... Hellraiser 4, Bloodlines, like, that's been a long fucking time, man, so, you know, the last thing, you know, Candyman, you know, the sequels went direct-to-video, you know, uh, I just, 
when that starts to happen, you know as well as I do that quality starts to decline because then the studios know they can make money, but if they can just dump it on something and know that they're going to make money, is, is the quality content going to be there? I mean, certainly I think that horror content has really has really improved so much over the years that, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't feel like horror filmmakers would phone it in, you know, specific, you know, if they had the opportunity to take the reins on these things now, kind of, you know, like they may have back in, in the nineties, but I think, I th- I yeah, know, I man. Mean, honestly, it could go either way. I mean, sure. Netflix could have said, Hey, we know this will chart for the weekend. It'll be well worth our money. And also, unfortunately, like Leatherface isn't on the same level as Michael Myers, you know, in terms of like box office, we know that Halloween kills is going to come out and absolutely slaughter the box office in October. But with the way things are happening right now with the Delta variant, people are starting to take a few steps back on going and sitting in a packed theater again. So maybe that's just their mindset. Like, hey, this is a gamble. Let's just decide to get our money back. We'll put it on there. And hey, if there's interest and it does well and people like it, then maybe eventually when things are a lot more cool uh, in terms of like audience participation again, then they'll, they'll do another one. But I guess I would be remiss, Jeremy, if I wouldn't mention the fact that right now I'm sipping back on some Sheets gas station pumpkin pie soda mixed with vodka. How's how's that treating you? How does how does that taste? I mean, it look it looks it looks dark, a little dark. Is that is that? I'm guessing that's the color of the uh, pie soda. Well, our normal EFG listeners expect me to do stupid things like eat nightmare burgers on the air and drink disgusting sodas. And this, I'm sorry, Sheets, I love you as a gas station, but it's probably the most disgusting pumpkin flavored thing I've ever tasted. And it has nothing to do with the vodka because it is mixed with Tito's, which is delicious. But I had to take that sip right there because as of the date of this recording, it's exactly six years ago today, Jeremy, that we lost the great horror master Wes Craven, which I know is so near and dear to your heart. He's one of your biggest heroes, one of your biggest inspirations. For sure, man. Uh, dude, his, man, his passing, it's one of those those moments. It's it, it's like an Elvis moment, right? Like everybody during the Elvis you know, era, they know and they remember exactly where they were when they found out that Elvis died. Um, and that's a moment that I'll never forget is is that exact moment when I found out that Wes Craven died. Uh, he was someone that I admired so much. He, the things that he created, you know, changed my life. Like, literally. Uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street changed my life. Uh, you know, we have a film coming out called Fred Heads. It's a documentary about the fandom behind A Nightmare on Elm Street. And the whole story and the genesis of that movie is how that film brought people together that wouldn't have met each other if it wasn't for A Nightmare on Elm Street. And how that film changed all of our lives, and the whole the whole film shows how this this movie changed our life. Um, so yeah, man, I, I I'll never forget. I was in bed. It it was you know late, and I was going to sleep, and all of a sudden my uh, my phone started blowing up. I had like twenty people text me at the exact. I remember same time I was I was one of them for sure too, yeah. <sighs> dude, and I I didn't even open my phone. You know I could see the notification, and it it read. Wes Craven died, and I literally, I, I'll never forget, I went, fuck, fuck, and I jumped out of bed, and my, my wife was like, oh, oh my god, like, what's wrong, what's wrong, like, you know, she didn't know what the fuck was happening due to my reaction, and I was like, oh, fucking, Wes Craven died, and like, rather than her be like, okay, like, she was like, oh, I'm so sorry, like, 
she knew how much that dude meant to me. And I never got to meet him. He was a bucket list person for me. Like I, I really, really wanted to meet him. I had one opportunity to meet him and I didn't do it. And it was one of those moments that you're like, ah, I'll definitely get him at another point. Uh, It was difficult for me. It was the weekend after I went to the Horror Hound event that had Jamie Lee Curtis at it, right? Oh, which was like the biggest deal in horror con history, basically. Ever, ever. Like her attending a convention was like mind shattering, right? And like everybody that could make it to that made it to that. And it was one week to the day after that that Wes Craven was accepting a Lifetime Achievement Award at the New York Horror Film Festival. And I was like, man, I, I, I don't have any time off from work right now, you know, and I didn't go. And that decision has haunted me ever since because I'm like, fuck, I should have just called out and I, I should have gone. And our listeners are going to hear me say this many, many times over as we discuss these kind of things. But if you ever have an opportunity to meet one of your heroes and it's something that's that's really important to you, you should go. Do it. If it's feasible, yeah, if, if it's feasible and you can go and you can make it work, you should go because you may never get that opportunity again. Either A, you know, whatever event that they're attending isn't ever going to happen again. Or B, you know, just because they do one convention doesn't mean they're going to keep doing them. Because sometimes it's a one and done like Jamie Lee. Or sometimes someone does a convention and they fucking hate it. I mean, dude, you can attest this. You met Michael Keaton. And from that's, what I heard, that motherfucker that's a one did and not done. have a good time. Bro, that's a one and done. You know from my wall right behind me, as you can see in the video, ladies and gentlemen. I can, I can see it. I'm, I'm one of it. three people that actually got a smile out of him for that photo. And he was not cheap and I flew across the country for it. So I a hundred percent, I mean, I totally agree with you. Like take the opportunity, take the chance. If it's your hero, if it's someone that you admire so much, just do it. You know that in the end, that's going to be a memory you'll never forget. So he was smart. He was smiling in your picture. Cause he was like thinking of all those new numbers that were going to be in his bank account <laughs> after attending that convention. Well, well th- th- there's that. And also I, I, I understood where he was coming from in terms of what he was reacting to with a lot of the fans expecting him to know certain things and like mentioning names that we know that this is just a job to him. But the way that I walked up to him and I looked him straight in the eyes, like turned to him and said, this is one of the biggest honors of my entire life. This means so much to me. So thank you so much. And he looked at me in the eyes and said, thanks man. And like moved closer, which meant I could move closer. That's why I'm almost touching him when I was told not to, but yeah, our listeners have heard that story in the past, but to- totally, dude. <laughs> I remember being at the gym in my complex downstairs, ready to work out and crush some weights. And I saw the news on Facebook and I immediately texted you. And that's one of the first things you said to me was that, like, man, I-, I so fucking regret not taking the time to meet Wes Craven. Dude, I, I should I should have gone. I wrote to him and I got a response. Actually, I wrote to him a few times and. You know, I didn't get responses the first couple times, but then like when I would check, like I would see that other people from time to time were getting a response. So I was like, dude, I'm just not sending at the right time. And so randomly out of the blue one day, I, I fucking I went out to my mailbox and I opened, I see a manila envelope and I saw W Craven and I went, holy fucking shit. So he signed uh, like some eight by tens for me, some images of the poster from an Emory Elm Street. Uh, he signed a couple other things. And he wrote me a little letter that said, uh, thanks for being a fan. Best wishes, Wes Craven. Honestly, the handwritten letter just, means just, more just, to just me. Just hearing you read that, man, almost brings me to tears on this anniversary date. Just thinking of that, uh, knowing how smart and intelligent of a man he was and how much he appreciated the fans. I mean, 
the fans are the only reason why he decided to come back and quote unquote, make another kick-ass movie with Scream, which reinvigorated his career and gave him that name brand recognition again. And that's the reason why I think he's so held up high as this iconic horror director today is because he took a chance and three decades in a row, you know, reinvigorated horror and yeah. reshaped it. So dude, he, he put everything on the line to be a filmmaker. I mean, he literally quit a career as a teacher, uh, his marriage, he, he put, you know, in the hot seat because like nobody understood why he wouldn't let it go. Like, no, you have a career, you have a life, you have a family. You can't just go off and make movies. And he said, no, I, I have to. This is something I have to do. I mean, if he would have listened to all of those people, we would have never gotten all the classics that we got from him. So R.I.P. Wes Craven, uh, thank you for everything. We love you and we miss you. And here as I sip this most disgusting sheets pumpkin pie soda mixed with vodka. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a quick promo break from our sponsor, Evil Tea, from the Evil Tea Company. And we come back. We're going to hear a segment on Jeremy's adventures that have to do with only say his name one time, Jeremy, just one time this time. Candyman. We'll be right back. The Brain Stew Podcast is fueled by our sponsor, Evil Tea, by the Evil Tea Company. Steeped in darkness, Evil Tea brings a sharp and spooky variety of tea flavors, featuring robust and creative blends for all those tea monsters out there. Use promo code BRAINSTEW for 15% off your first order. Check out their website at EvilTeaCompany.com to find the right blend for you. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for hanging out with us here and being creepy on another episode of Brain Stew, a Fresh Fright review. This is that little segment that Jeremy wants to just talk about his adventures, and we want to entertain you. We want to tell you about all the behind the scenes with Jeremy going all over the fucking planet and meeting people that have to do with the movies we're talking about. So, Jeremy, I'm not going to say his name another time. Our listeners already know what movie we're talking about. I don't yeah. I don't want to say it five times. You already did that, so I already know what's going to happen to you tonight, bro. Yeah, you motherfucker. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> well, if, if it's not Candyman waking me up to kill me in the middle of the night, it'll be my, my five-year-old just trying to, kill, <laughs> trying, to, trying to kill my sleep. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, a few episodes ago, uh, we talked uh, about Clive Barker and, and my experience with Clive Barker meeting him the first time, so... You know, the listeners have heard my Clive Barker story at this point. Uh, Clive Barker, I fucking love you, okay? Uh, I love you. So, I'm going to talk about Tony Todd, the motherfucking Candyman. So, the first time that I met Tony Todd was right before Hatchet 2 came out. And, Justin, I have to tell you, admittedly, I am not a massive Candyman fan. It's just something that I remember being in second grade and hearing the legend of the Candyman, right? Because the movie was coming out, kids found out about it through, you know, watching the trailer or their parents or on home video. And so I found out about the Candyman in in 1992 when I was in second grade, and it was fucking terrifying. I mean, I remember being in Texas at my cousin's house and us going into the bathroom. There was like, I don't know, five of us, like 
my, me, my brother. And you guys my, actually did you know, it. Three cousins. You, we you did, did it, it, man. Oh. We were. I was. I was scared shitless, man. So like, the idea of the Candyman to me was scarier than the film that I got. I think so. It was. It was one of those things. I had. A, I had a different expectation towards it. It's just. I respect the Candyman franchise, uh, but it's just never been something that I'm like. I fucking I need to get autographs. I want to wear the T-shirts. You know, I want to collect the toys, the statues, whatever. So, meeting Tony Todd right before Hatchet Two came out, I was stoked as fuck, man. Because when Hatchet came out in two thousand and seven, slashers were all but dead. We were getting nothing but either remakes or we were getting you know American versions of Japanese horror films at the time. So like slashers were all but fucking dead. I mean, we were getting The Ring. We were getting hostile, you know, we were getting... All the torture porn stuff, basically. All the torture porn stuff, yeah. So, I have always loved slashers. It's my favorite subgenre. Of the genre. Um, So, when Victor Crawley came out, I was like, fuck yeah, this is my shit. So, I was stoked. I was like, oh man, like, there's Reverend Zombie, a.k.a. Tony Todd. You know, so I walked up and, dude, I'll never forget the first time that I met him. That motherfucker had the biggest hot dog I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> and the listeners were like, this is getting weird. But I mean, like, an edible hot dog? You know, I'm not talking about the Candyman's wiener or nothing like that. Like, dude, he was sitting at his table, and rather than taking, like, a break like celebrities do often at conventions and go, all right, I'm about to take 20 minutes and go get a bite to eat, and, and, he yeah. was like, nah. No, he was like, there's, there's, <laughs> there's, there's money to be made here. Bring me a hot dog. So <laughs> he had the biggest fucking hot dog. Like I, it was like a foot long hot dog. It was like as long as my fucking arm. And the the weirdest part is that like he was literally like signing autographs and like he'd stop and he'd take a big big ass bite of this hot dog. And like dude, it it had so many toppings on it that I'm like, the question became what didn't Tony Todd order on his hot dog, right? So like I just imagine like him like. <laughs> Like, going to, you know, a place that sells hot dogs, and he's like, they're like, what would you like on it? He's like, I'd like bits of bacon. The hot dog, I can assure you, will be exquisite. Relish. <laughs> Mustard. Jalapenos! Like, I can just imagine, like, the list going on and on, and the person just, like, piling the toppings on. So, I fanboyed out, and I was like, you know, I had been on message boards and different websites finding out, like, new plot details for Hatchet 2, and when I was I was dropping knowledge on him, he was like, how did you know that? Like, like he thought, like, did I find the script? And I was like, dude, I've just read a bunch of shit online. He was like, damn, that shit's everywhere, huh? I was like, yeah, it's, it's, I'm really excited about it. So, I mean, the image of Tony Todd for me is just him shoving a foot-long hot dog into his mouth with, like, fucking coleslaw hanging out of the side of his mouth. <laughs> But uh, that but image no, alone, that image alone is like more terrifying than seeing him with a hook in the coat <laughs> in a fucking alleyway or in a parking garage, dude. Helen, hot dog. But <laughs> so uh, another Tony Todd story, which like I almost forgot about until the other day. And this is one that I was like, man, should I even tell this story? But God damn it. Our listeners deserve to hear this shit. They want it. So they want it. Give it to them. <laughs> they want it. If they want it, they go and get it. So, uh, dude, I was at a convention and I was hanging out with um, a horror movie celebrity that's very well known. And we were drinking beers. We were at the bar. 
And Tony Todd walks up and goes, Hey. And he says the name of the person that I was with. I'm not going to name drop them. Uh, and they're like, Hey, Tony, how's it going? He's like, You want some candy? And all of a sudden, in his hand, he has these caramels, right? And she was like, "Like, What is that? And he goes, They're edibles. And <laughs> so the candy man was offering weed candies to this person. And so they were like, Oh, I'll take that. So they they take one, and he looks at me and he goes, "You want one?" And I was like, "Dude, I'll tell you right now. Like, I've never been a fan of smoking weed. It's just not my thing, or you know, edibles." I feel or anything you, like bro. That. It's it's my that's it's, my it's, thing, but I, I understand. Yeah, I, I mean, get it. not it's not my thing. It's you know, I think I'm too high strung for that. I don't know. Like, I feel like I'm like dying when I have it. I'm like, I think my heart is beating too fast. I don't feel good, and uh, so. I was like, how many opportunities am I going to have in my life to eat a weed candy from the candy man? So, I mean, dude, this this day I, ha- I had shots of liquor. I had beer. And then I was like, all right, fuck it. I'm taking a fucking a weed candy from the candy, the candy man. So, man. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, I ate a weed candy that was given me from the candy man. So, that's, uh, that's not something that happens every day. So, I feel like that was a ride that I had to go on. This is a story I've never heard before, actually. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I'll, t- I'll tell you the full story later, but uh, <laughs> that that's pretty much the gist but, of it. But, it, but, uh, but you're it, here today. You're here I'm recording here. this. You're alive. I'm you here, lived yeah. through it. I'm, so the, I did. The, the candy, the weed candy from the Candyman, the one and only Tony Todd, did not actually kill you. There was no razor no, blades involved or anything like that. There was not. Uh, it, it made for a shit show of a night, but uh, no, I'm, I'm here, man. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of this segment here for Jeremy's Adventures. But I did want to give you the opportunity, though, because I know when we talked the other day, real quick, you know, I I know how you feel about your props and all that, but I know you got something really awesome that you wanted to tell our listeners about. Uh, Recently? Yes. See, I've gotten so much shit in that I'm like... Man, which which one are you referring to? I'm pretty sure it has to do with John Carpenter, Kurt Russell. Oh, the the poster. No, the poster. No, you're you're like huge, like the thing prop you got. Oh, 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 oh dude, my display. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, see, see, you you just threw me off because like literally, I uh, I just I. Oh, just you got ordered, something else. Uh, you got something. I got else. something else. I don't know. Yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, Okay, that's yeah, yeah. always the case um, with you, but no. So, so I I, uh, I just purchased a full size the thing poster that is literally signed by feasibly everyone that you could have gotten from the cast. It's it's got Kurt Russell on it, beautiful Kurt Russell signature. It's got John Carpenter. Uh, it's got Wilford Brimley. Which getting Wilford Brimley now obviously is impossible because he's no um, longer with us. He's no longer Rest with us. Soul. But getting getting him on a full size poster, you know, like the people that typically got those done. They're not letting them go. So, usually the most you can get with Wilford on it is an 8x10 or 11x17. So, the fact that this poster was, I mean, it has Drew Struzan on it. Um, It's even got one of the Norwegian guys on it. Um, It's only missing three names, right? Which, dude, this was was meant to be. It's it's missing uh, Keith David. It's missing Thomas Waits and um, um, Peter Maloney. Okay. Which, coincidentally, in a few weeks, I'm going to a show that all three of them, they're the only guests from the thing that are going to be that, at is the that show. Is that Chiller? 
No, it's a Connecticut horror con. It's really weird because it's like it's a one day horror convention, which I had never heard of a one day horror convention before. But dude, it was meant to be because I got this poster right, and it's only missing three names, and all three names are at a convention that I'm going to. That I was like, dude, this is fucking fate. So I'm like, I'm really really excited about it. I'm probably gonna have one of the most near or nearest to complete cast posters out there. So I'm super excited about it. Um, but yeah, man, I um. I have some uh, some some new busts. Uh, they're life size busts from the thing. It's one of my. It's in my top five horror films of all time. Um, it's just I love it even more every viewing. Just like Halloween, like I just I fucking love that movie. So uh, there's an artist uh, that lives overseas, and he's a huge fan of the thing. To where he was like, "Damn, there's no life size busts from this movie." So he's an artist, and he's he decided to create them. So I have it's, uh, I have the the Norris decapitated head, uh, with with the tongue that whips out, you know, that it scoots itself across the floor. I have uh the split face, you know, that they found on the Norwegian camp. I have uh Blair, the dog head Blair, where his you know at the very end when Wolfer Brimley's character, this you know, he transforms into this dog face creature at the end of the film, and. My favorite is the Norris Spiderhead, dude. I swear Life to God, size. man. You're, you're telling our listeners about this. I guarantee you, if we ask them, they would demand a video of such dude, amazing I'm, I'm, props. I'm completely down. I'm I'm so I'm so happy to own them, and I'm so happy that the uh, the artist, his name is Simon. Uh, on eBay, he's Doodle and Tibbs. Uh, if any if anybody's interested in in Acquiring one after we release photos and, and videos of him, like I can put you in contact with him. He was super easy and great to work with, and dude, I got them like a week after I ordered them, and that was coming from overseas. That's nuts. So that's crazy. Yeah, so it's just it's such a beautiful display in my basement, and I'm I'm so happy. And you know, one more thing before we get into Candyman. <laughs> I'm really fucked, man. We've said his name a lot of times. I, I, and there I really think, is a I mirror think right I'm, next I'm to me. I'm almost at five. I'm almost at five because I'm starting to forget because this pumpkin pie soda mixed with vodka is not handling well tonight. Yeah, I was going to say a couple more sips of that Tito's and fucking, I mean, Ooh. you and the candy man are going to be hanging out later. I hope he likes Tito's. Or the rest of this pumpkin pie soda. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we mentioned the Texas Chainsaw remake uh, from 2003 earlier that, that we loved. So this past weekend, I went to a convention, Creature Feature Weekend. It was in Gettysburg. I've been to different conventions there uh, over the over the years. It's it's a really great place to visit and, and go. And it's the second Creature Feature convention that I've gone to. Uh, the first one, they had Tom Woodruff, which is a fucking rare name, man. So, like, that was the first time that I went because I was like, dude, Pumpkinhead's going to be there? Also, the guy that created... The Graboids and Tremors, like, you know, he, he did the effects on Terminator. Like, I, I have to, I gotta, I gotta go, man. So, the one that I went to this past weekend had Andrew Byronowski, who was the Leatherface from the 2003 Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And if, if you guys know anything about him as a person, um, if you Google his name, you'll find some interesting things. He's had some problems over the year, over the years, uh, but... He, he has changed so much in appearance over the years that he looks like uh, Donald Gibbs, 
from like Bloodsport and Revenge of the Nerds now. <laughs> dude, dude, I didn't know who the fuck he was, but he looks just like Ogre from Revenge of the Nerds now. And dude, uh, as I was in line to get my ticket to go into the convention, like I see this big, huge, burly motherfucker walking through, and there was somebody cosplaying as Beetlejuice, and he made dead ass eye contact with him. He's like, "What the fuck you gonna do, Beetlejuice?" <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> and I was, dude. Immediately, I was like, Yo, "Dude, who the fuck?" I bet you, Beetlejuice, if he had balls, they dropped real hard at that moment. It, it yeah. <laughs> what the fuck you gonna do, Beetlejuice? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Oh my god, dude, who is this guy?" Like, holy shit! Like, people are just excited to be out in public again. But uh, then when when I found his table, I was like, "Holy fuck, that's Andrew Byron." That's the guy like, you're I about just, to meet, right? That's that's Max Shrek from Batman Returns, by the way. Did you know that? Yeah, dude. That's crazy. Okay. All right. He he, he, All right, he, he looks nothing like he did then, but he was a he no. was a big guy then though. He was a very big yeah. guy. He probably hadn't gone crazy. Dad, yet. go save yourself. Dad, go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. So, uh, but let me tell you again. If if you Google Andrew Byronowski, you you'll see some shit. Okay. Um, you know, people go through things, right? Okay. I was terrified meeting him because you ever met somebody that they're not doing anything like necessarily mean or offensive to you, but even when they're trying to be nice, there's an aggressiveness to them that you're like, you're immediately put on edge. Like, like, you know, this guy's trying to be nice, but I feel like anything could make this motherfucker snap. So like I walked up with my full size, original theatrical, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2003 poster, right? And I was like, hey, Andrew, I'm, I'm a big fan, man. I, I've waited a long time to get your autograph on this poster. He's like, all right, put it down. And I was like, okay. So, like, I, like, laid it out. And he was like, you know, well, where do you want me to sign this thing? And, like, he wasn't being mean, but it was, like, just this huge fucking force and aggressiveness with him. But I was like, dude, I feel like if I said the wrong thing. Well, I mean, dude, he's actually banned from attending a lot of conventions because, you know, he's punched fans in the face. Like, he's grabbed people. You know, he's done things. So, like, a lot of conventions won't work with him because he's a fucking liability. So, yeah, I was absolutely on edge getting my poster signed. And I was like, hey, can I can I get a picture with you? And he was like, yeah, you can come over on this side of the table. I was like, oh, that's that's the danger zone, but I'm, I'm coming to get my picture with you. Also considering the fact that you're, like, a quarter the size of that man. The oh, girth of fraction. that guy. A fraction. So, yeah, I mean, dude, he was cool. So don't get me wrong. I'm not talking shit about Andrew Bynowski, but he's a scary motherfucker in real life, just like he was his leather So face. proceed like, with make caution, Make no mistakes right? about proceed it. Proceed with caution. Yeah. If, you're, if you're interested in meeting him, um, dude, that just makes me want to get my one of my Batman Returns pieces signed by him. I should have <laughs> known. I should have known. I knew you were going. I didn't think about it. I looked at the guest list, and I was like, eh, but... Yeah, That's- dude, no, it was it was great, man. I got Ted Raimi. I met, uh, you know, Nancy Lewis from Halloween was there. It's always great seeing her. Um, uh, I met Oliver Robbins from Poltergeist. He played Robbie, the son. Uh, it was it was great, man. It was it was a it was a great weekend. But you know, I figured we we had mentioned TCM two thousand three, so I was like, you know what? Let me let me tell my Andrew Byronowski story. One hundred percent, dude. Fuck yeah, yeah, bro. So there, that is the end for now of the segment for Jeremy's Adventures. And now we're going to go to a quick promo break. We're going to hear from our friends at Cult 45 Podcast. And when we finally, 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 finally come back. I'm not going to say his name. 
Nia DaCosta directed it. You know what I'm talking about. Andy Fucking dick. We'll be right back. Some podcasts are like this. The bodies of three hikers were all empty and their organs were laid out like a Sunday dinner. And some podcasts are like this. You know what? I'm going to tell you why having a large penis ain't always a good thing. But only one podcast is where you can get in-depth analysis like this. Oh, you want that to blow up in real life? Fuck it. Let's oh, do you're it. such a money slut. Take it all. <laughs> <laughs> you want to turn that boy into goo into a fucking helicopter? Yeah. Uh, fuck yeah. <laughs> goo him up a lot. You are now listening to Call 45. This is Beat'em Down. And I'm Random Randy Savage. Find us on all your podcatching apps like Podbean or Spotify. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or just go to www.cult45podcast.com. Also check out our YouTube for that sweet, sweet video content. Cult 45, the only podcast that puts hair on your chest. And ladies and gentlemen, we are back with a Fresh Frights review Brain stew, baby. That's right. We're going to be talking about what is considered a sequel to the horror film Candyman that returns to the now gentrified Chicago neighborhood where that good old legend that terrified audiences originally began. And I can't go any further, Jeremy, without mentioning the milestone that is this film. Now, we haven't gotten into our opinion on the movie yet. We're about to get there in a few minutes, but... Nia DaCosta, the female African-American director, has literally made history this past weekend in becoming the first black female filmmaker to open a picture at number one at the domestic box office. And Candyman marks the second highest grossing three-day weekend box office opening from a black female director. What a fucking feat, dude. Fuck yes, dude. Like, amazing. I was so stoked. When I saw that, I immediately shared that on, on social media, and I know you did as well. Like, that's just such an amazing milestone, and I'm, I'm so happy that not only, you know, is history being made for a female African-American director, but history is being made with horror, right? 100%, like, dude. Th- this, this is huge because you know as well as I do that when a horror movie makes money, every studio sits up in their fucking seats, and they go, you know what? We could do that. We could make a horror. That door movie. is I mean, opening. That door is opening. How much did it did it cost to make Candyman twenty twenty one? Well, we we could do that. So it was like twenty five you know, million, dude. And and its opening dude, weekend, it already made twenty seven point six million. And that's not even talking about by the time this episode is released. I know people are still going out to see it. I'm gonna go see it again. Um, we'll we'll, we'll get to that, of course. But you know, th- this is great because not only you know is, is or more horror films going to get made because of this, but people are going out and they're spending their money for the horror genre. You know what I mean? Like it's so, it's so easy with these releases now to go, ah, oh, I'll wait for, for Netflix or I'll wait till it comes out on video. But people, you know, DaCosta and Peel, you know, they created a product that people are, are having their wallet in their hand and they're like, I want this. Let's do this in an age where people just wait for streaming. So I think that's, huge in and of itself for horror it is and also considering the fact that even though this is a relevant franchise it's actually not that relevant i mean the original movie was the early 90s as you said earlier on in our discussion the sequels weren't like box office juggernauts or anything they're mostly unknown except for hardcore fans so it's not like they were big hits so this is 
it is a sequel, so we're going to get into spoilers, ladies and gentlemen. A spiritual sequel. It's a, it's, it's a sequel. It's a sequel. Yeah. But I mean, dude, when <laughs> when when they had when they had announced this movie, and it was like, all right, is this a remake? Is it a reboot? Are they going the Halloween 2018 approach? What what is happening? Once I read spiritual sequel, I said, what in the fuck is a spiritual uh, sequel? What's that mean? <laughs> I, I still don't know what the fuck that means, but okay. Well, it was a sequel. Okay. W- what I want to do right now before I approach the actual review is I just wanted to say something that I, I made apparent over the weekend on my social media. And whether I loved this movie or not, it's very apparent that way too many people are referring to it as Jordan Peele's Candyman. And motherfucker, it's not Jordan Peele's film. Yeah, his footprints all over this thing. He did produce it and had his hand in the screenplay. Yeah, that brand name recognition. But it's Nia DaCosta's film, cut and dry. And when a female filmmaker has nearly knocked it out of the park with a horror film, as Jeremy rightfully said a few moments ago, it's very important to give credit where credit is due. So, listen. Think about who made the movie. Pay attention to the on- credits. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. look at the screen. You're there watching it. Just just look at the names. They're being brought forward in front of you. So, you know, just do due diligence, pay attention, and give that credit because that means so much, especially with DaCosta and being, I mean, she's not relatively unknown, but she's still an up-and-coming filmmaker. So it's a big deal. And like Jeremy said, this is huge for horror, but it's also equally huge for female filmmakers, which rarely get the opportunity to helm such movies. So uh, that's one thing that I know, you know, Jordan Peele's c- company monkey paw said is that didn't want, they didn't want to go for a known horror director, hiring someone focused safely and solely on jump scares and terror was important, but they just didn't want to take the soul out of candy, man. That was, you know, not verbatim, but what they said in an interview. And I think they made the right choice, but, Moving on to our actual review, I'm going to throw it to you first. Jeremy, you got to see this before I got to see it. Uh, I did. Because I was hosting our Terror Tuesday screening of A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors at Alamo, Drafthouse DC, Ashburn. Also, by the way, thanks to everyone listening now that came out to that and made that night amazing. But Jeremy was there watching the new Candyman. I didn't get to see it for two days later. Let's get your initial thoughts on this movie, sure. man. I mean, for me... Being that I was not a a hardcore Candyman fan, I didn't I hadn't even seen Candyman two or three until literally last week, right? So it was just never something that I was like, you know, I'm trying to watch a fucking Candyman movie. But you know, having you know gone into this movie, I had no expectations because other than to be entertained. Because again, you know, it's not like you know, Elm Street and Halloween are near and dear to my heart. Going into those movies, I have preconceived expectations. With this one, I was like. I just wanted a good film with good acting, good story, and I just wanted to have a good time. And that was what I went into it with. And, man, I, I have to tell you that, uh, you know, without going into the, the final thoughts on it just yet, I, I had a really great time with this movie, Justin. Um, I thought it brought a lot of new things to the table. Uh, there weren't too many, you know, tropes that I felt like, oh, fuck, here we go with this. You know what I mean? Horror horror is known for sometimes lazily introducing certain, you know, genre-specific tropes that it's like, all right, it's recycled from, you know, thing to thing. There wasn't a bunch of unnecessary jump scares there or 
cheap scares as, as us horror fans call it sometimes. Hey, I like a good jump scare sometimes. I mean, we just, we just talked about some of the best jump scares we've seen in a long time on our last episode talking about the night house. So when, 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 you know, proposed and developed properly, they can be very effective, but yeah. So I, you know, being that this was a direct sequel to the original, you know, I had seen the original a few times. And so obviously I, I knew the events that took place before when this, this film took place and I had a good time with it, man. I, I, I really enjoyed, uh, how creepy and fucking eerie this movie was because this movie is just littered with just eerie atmosphere and fucking dread. I mean, from the very fucking beginning of this movie, it's just filled with dread. I mean, Jesus, dude, let's talk about that. That first scene in the movie that took place in the 70s in Cabrini Greens, right? It it takes place um, in the same location that the original took place. And it, it has a uh, a little kid, Billy, also you know known as William Burke, is is the character's name. And so in the seventies, they uh, th- there was a character named Sherman that lived in Cabrini Greens that would give out candy to little kids in the area. Well, come to find out, a little girl a couple towns over ended up getting some candy from a stranger that had a razor blade in it. And so all of a sudden, the police were like, well, that fucking guy, Sherman, gives out candy to kids all the time. I bet he was the one that did and it. And what I love about this, though, and I don't mean to cut you off or anything, but I love that this is a reference to the original Candyman, which was a white father named Ronald O'Brien who actually poisoned his own son with pixie sticks. He's the original, like, the urban legend of the Candyman that was in the 1970s. This is way before yep. Clyde Barker even wrote a short story. So I love that they're like taking that element and automatically proposing that what we learn later on in the movie is just this kind of gentle, maybe slightly not all the way there in his head guy with the hook for yeah. a hand is automatically considered a target for, for being this, this, this killer. It was, it was the seventies. It was, you know, Cabrini greens was a ghetto, you know, uh, it was a low income housing area. So these white cops, they go, well, it was it's this fucking black guy that's giving out candy to people. I guarantee it's him. So they made up their minds before they ever even really knew if it was him. So uh, Billy, he goes and you know to to do laundry for his family, and he goes downstairs in this really fucking creepy basement where, of course, that's where you do your laundry in a fucking creepy where basement there's a in giant this hole. Where there's a giant hole yeah. in the wall. Yeah, I mean, but I get Dude, it. Yeah. I get it. I've been in buildings like that, so I get it. There's a giant hole in the wall, and all of a sudden, you know, the cops are sitting outside in, the, in, their, in their police cruiser, and they had harassed Billy on his way in, right? Because he's, he's a young African-American male. They're white cops. They're giving him shit as he was going in. So anyway, so Billy goes downstairs, and <laughs> all of a sudden, a piece of candy drops on the floor, and he looks up, and out of the hole steps this man who has a hook for a hand, but not like a violent hook, right? Like... You know, back in the day when people were missing a hand, sometimes they would fucking have a hook for a hand. I mean, fucking uh, look at uh, what was that fucking bowling movie called? Kingpin? Uh, yeah. No, Bill, King Bill Murray's Kingpin. character, right? <laughs> yeah. So back in the day, just like that, he had a fucking hook for a hand because he was missing his hand. Oh, no, it's, he, it's Woody Harrelson's character. Look, look it's been, yeah, that's, yeah. that's how long I've seen until I was yeah, a long time ago. Roy Munson. The Farrelly Brothers. Fucking, the Farrelly Brothers. Yeah, yeah. Show. Dude, I, I love that movie. But uh, so out steps out of the hole this this guy with a hook for a hand, and he offers, he extends his hand with some candy, 
and he was smiling and kind of humming as he did so, and it startled young Billy, and he screams inadvertently, alerting the police that something may be happening in the building. So what happens is Billy takes off, the police come in, and no questions asked. The police already made up their mind that he was he was the one responsible for the razor blade, and they beat Sherman Fields to, to death, death with right in that right yeah, in that laundry with, room with no just cause. And I mean, this goes back to the opening credits, and I'm just going to get to my initial thoughts here real quick. But the opening credits from the first frame of this movie, it's immediately apparent that they're jumping into social commentary with Billy playing with his puppets and having an African American being harassed by what appears to be, I mean, it's in silhouette, so we don't know, but it appears to be a white policeman. I have to say before we go any further though, Jeremy, that this movie, man, a brilliant visual flair. I mean, this thing was so nice to look at. The direction is perfection with a thunder, with a thundering score the transformation of the Candyman myth into a method to fight back against police brutality is very intriguing as a concept. Um, sure. As we go through this review, I'll tell you if I found that to be handled clumsily or well, um, as some of the themes are most definitely heavy handed. Now, I know a lot of people have come out on film Twitter and everywhere else and said, hey, listen, have you seen the real Candyman? I think actually the first response to my blurb on Twitter at like 1030 at night after I saw the movie was, have you not seen the original? And yes, I have. Um, It was actually our first Terror Tuesday screening. We did at Alamo DC like three years ago. Unlike Jeremy, I love the original. Um, It's definitely, in my opinion, one of the best 90s horror movies ever made in terms of acting atmosphere cinematography score uh and all around dread so yes um i understand the direction they took with this movie and the character since one of the themes is gentrification we'll go through that in a few moments when i throw this to jeremy in terms of what he thinks of the characters um so i might as well do that right now because i found having your characters right from the get-go be these yuppie socialite artists doesn't really inspire much sympathy much sympathy for them or find them all that relatable so what did you think overall of our main characters i have to tell you probably my favorite character um outside of you know i i love the sherman fields character i thought that he was was creepy as shit and terrifying so like he's my favorite character in the entire film hands down but outside of him from our our main players, man, Nathan Stewart uh, as Troy. Holy shit. I mean, one thing that, that the original Candyman films didn't really have a whole lot of was humor. Like, everything was always very... Oh, movie very, the, the movie was deadpan serious. The was, entire was time. deadpan yeah. serious and bleak and just, there is no levity, right? So this movie, that was one thing that, that I did have one expectation of just, please, like, let there be a little bit of levity in this by a little bit of humor, right? Not not overkill, but just it can't be so dead serious and the world is such a horrible place all the time. Um, and Troy, man, Troy was funny as shit. I, I really liked some of from him going back and forth about not wanting to drink wine from Walgreens <laughs> to, to, I mean, one of his lines was uh, when they were talking about the candy, man, he said, um... Black people do not need to be conjuring shit. It didn't it I mean, didn't he I, also I he, he mentioned like Postmates delivers wine or something and I was like holy <laughs> shit like but but honestly I've been that guy when I've gone to friends houses and I'm like bro all you have is this beer 
for real. Yeah. And I'm like, I should have yeah. just brought something on my own. But no, he was definitely, uh, I, I agree with you. There, there needed to be some levity there. There needed to be like a light flavor throughout this thing. So when we get to the scary, spooky, really heavy shit, it matters sure. more. Whereas in the original movie, it's definitely heavy from the get go. Very deadpan serious. Like whatever humor is there is just white humor. That's like kind of random and whatever. Um, but I have to get to our main character, Anthony McCoy, played by Yaha Abdul-Mateen. He is our centerpiece here. And I don't know, man. Um, I think he was he was OK, man. I, th- I think he's I think he's pretty solid in the role. I think yeah. I mean, obviously, they're putting him in a very serious position here. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, those of you that have seen the movie, you know what we're talking about. This is a big, these are big shoes to fill. This is a big coat to put on and a big hook to put on your hand. Um, how did you think he he got through the whole movie? Do you think that he did a very good job or? I think he sold it. Absolutely. I, I think, uh, I think he did a great job. Was this a situation where I couldn't envision anyone else in the role? No. Uh, you know, I think he did a great job, but I think there was other people out there that could have done the job just as well, you know, but I think that he, he carried the film very well. Um, I, I enjoyed his, his transformation in this movie. Oh yeah. Literally. It's, it's definitely, literally. it's definitely one of the best things in the movie. And I think in terms of performance, you are correct. There are a lot of people that probably could have pulled this off. Um, but I did really enjoy the way that he, I mean, some of the body horror aspects in the movie. I mean, there's our moments oh, where man. we're with him so often where he's alone you know, he's in this state of shock or he's in this state of his own internal transformation, dealing with these things and basically unveiling this urban legend, which we're going to get to in a moment, seems like it was buried with Cabrini Green once they tore everything down and built up these skyscrapers and all these modern housing units where it's like no one, these young millennials, if you will, are fully unaware of the story. Thanks to Troy. Um you know, when he goes over to his sister Brianna's house for this night of having some wine and some bullshitting, you guys want to hear a scary story? I mean, tell me as a horror fan, what better way to start your movie than that, man? That's like the I line. It. I love you it. You know, the line. And then it, all it was missing was a campfire. Right. I mean, but I guess this is the modern version for, you know, the urban audience because we don't have that. I mean, even me, man. I mean, the apartment that I live in right now. And me and the wife are starting to house hunt. That's one of my number one things, man. You you know, because you've had houses, you've had your fire pit and shit. That's so important to those of us that like grew up with uncles or, you know, grandfathers that would sit around the fire and just tell stories, you know? So I loved that this was kind of an analogy for that, where they're sitting around a very expensive coffee table in like a million dollar fucking high rise but he, that place looked nice, man. <laughs> definitely million dollar, if not more than a million dollars. Yeah, so for sure, that's 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 part of my issue with like, you know, having them be yuppie socialite artists or involved in the art scene because I know how much money comes in with that, and it's like okay, but you want to make them relatable. You're a struggling artist, and I get that. You know, it's it's connected to the fact that Candyman was an artist, and we'll get there. But I'm, I'm going to tell you right now that there is not a lot of likable characters in this. Film. That's what I'm saying. You know? That's what I'm saying, man. Yeah, there, there, there's there's really not like I, I really loved Troy. I liked Coleman Domingo as the adult William Burke. I really 
man, he, he just had an aura about him that when he talked, you wanted to listen. And he was the one that was was used to, to drop the knowledge on the Candyman. Well, here's what happened, and this is what happened with Cabrini Greens, and here's the, the lowdown about Candyman. You know, he was he was a, a plot device used to inform the audience on on what had, had happened in Cabrini Greens with the Candyman. He was fantastic as well, and I, I, I loved his character, but, man, they introduced so many unlikable characters that essentially were just lambs for the slaughter, right? Yeah. Like, they were introduced because we weren't supposed to like them, and they're going to get sliced and diced. And, and I'm going to tell you, Justin, that there is one thing that I did really, really love about this film compared to the original is that in the original Candyman, I mean, Candyman, uh, Daniel Robitaille, would just straight up fucking off anybody that got in his way or the way of his target, which was Helen, right? So it didn't matter who it was. Uh, he was fucking them up. He was killing them just to torment Helen in the original film, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. He didn't discriminate. So, he didn't discriminate against who he killed. No, in this film, however, all of the people that got killed was a situation where they kind of deserved it in some shape or form. So I thought that was, also, that was interesting. <laughs> also, they're all white, but... <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying yeah, that's, 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 just, very that's true. just a basic observation. Um, the movie does have those deep sub themes as well as a very strong visual lack of, you know, about the gentrification of urban ghettos. We see it throughout the movie. It's constantly thrown in our face. And I would have liked it if the movie took a more subtle approach to these things. And it has nothing to do sure. with the fact that I'm a white male. Seriously, ladies and gentlemen, I look at these things from the most open perspective that I can possibly give. And whether it was whatever it was, I still found it to be very heavy handed. Um, it was, it, it was for sure. You know, I think some give and take, I mean, give us at least one likable white character you know, when, or something. When, I mean, when, when George Romero w- was doing his social commentary in his films, right? It, they weren't blatant. There, there were they were symbolisms for the the political things that he was trying to convey in his film, right? Like his zombie movies were never just like here's the zombie movies. They they were speaking to what was going on in our society at that time. To where this movie is, it's fucking it's force feeding it down your throat. It definitely there's is. no there's no hiding the subtext of what this film is trying is is trying to tell you. I mean, Anthony goes to show his works of art that are going to be at this new display for this new art exhibit. And this character named Clive, this asshole, like piece of shit, douchey white guy, by, which sucks. By, by the way, why is it? Why did they name him Clive? Is that like a, Thank you. a, a very Thank you. disrespectful jab or something? Why would they do that? Clive? Cause it's obviously an homage to Clive Barker, but it's like, why would you choose this character? Who's a piece of shit because, dude, he's a, to he, be, to be the Clive oh, Barker. Man, he's, homage. he's a total piece of shit. He he's, he's telling the Anthony character. I don't want the Anthony of two years ago. I want the Anthony of now the great black hope of Chicago telling him to dig into that history as he randomly slaps him on the chest, like a douchebag. And like, dude, instantly we're presented with the first white character in the movie who is deplorably obnoxious. I was like, to me, naming him Clive, I don't think that it was a coincidence, which kind of hurt a little bit, considering that Clive Barker wrote the short story in which Candyman was the forbidden. Yeah, I yeah. mean, so Dude, so 
I had a I had a buddy on on Facebook that uh, Costas that that hit me up and he goes, man, he goes, didn't you find that disrespectful? And I said, well, yeah, but like, what exactly did you did you find offensive? And he goes, there's a line that that's in the movie that one of the critics said or someone in the, in the movie said, um, Clive had to die so you could be born. And he was like, do you feel like that was some kind of weird slap in the face for Clive Barker? And I was like, holy shit, I, I don't think, I think that went over my head. Clive had to die. So well, that line actually was physically spoken. You are 100% yeah. correct. When Anthony goes yeah. to visit, I don't know why he honestly went to go visit her after she like literally pissed and shit all over his exhibit. It's, 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 it's hilarious the way that that worked out or whatever, but it obviously moves the story along to kill more obnoxious, annoying white people. Um, but they are the villains in this movie. And I mean, their dialogue shows what kind of people they are. Um, you know, that is a great scene actually, in terms of transformation for Anthony into what he later becomes. Oh man, it's one of the best scenes ever where he's picking at his hand, that body horror aspect. And he literally Mm. takes a chunk out of his hand and, it was disgusting. Dude, you know, <laughs> she she had earlier said on, like, when he's trying to tell her about the exhibit at the art show, it speaks all right of didactic cliche of gentrification. You kind of are the real pioneers. And he's like, excuse me? Yeah, you're kind. Yeah. And then she's like, oh, artists. So this makes Anthony get drunk and upset. And like, he gets fucking pissed off and calls the dude a goofy fuck, and which I thought was hilarious. And he like dude, it was funny, uh, shit. but I didn't understand like how he could have had that many beers to get that hammered. Is he a lightweight? He looks pretty jacked, bro. I'm just saying, he, he look looks pretty, pretty jacked. jacked. I'm like, do they have that many beers there for free? I've been to plenty of art shows. Okay. Well, what did he have for lunch, Justin? That's true. Maybe he didn't eat the whole day because he was scared. Maybe because he was all nervous about it. Very true. Okay. Well, because he is he is jacked and he is ripped, so. That's true. Very, very true. But we have to talk about some of the scenes that we love about this movie. And one of mine, and I know one of yours because we talked about it pre-show, was the scene that happens after this art show. It's one of the most visually stunning scenes in the entire movie. This is what horror fans like you and I go to see these movies for, is the kills. We want to see the goods, man. Give it to us good. Give it to us bloody. What did you think of... (laughs) Come on, do it now. Come on, give it to me. Ah, get to the chopper. Go slice the heads off. I mean, we were here in this art exhibit with this douchebag named Clive and his girlfriend, uh, Jerica. Jerica, which, yes, looks like all of the girls I've dated in the past 15 years. Sorry, honey. Um, wearing a Joy Division shirt, which is hilarious because they say the, she says the line from one of the songs and... She's like obviously 20 and he's obviously like our age or my age, like yeah, 40 or yeah. something like that. Yeah. And we get most definitely, I think, the visually most impressive kill scene in the entire movie. I, I appreciated this kill scene a lot because I, I I felt like in this scene, you know, Candyman took his time and kind of fucking with the Clive character before just a lot of time in the Candyman movies, it's just He'll appear behind someone and then all of a sudden, you know, hook into stomach or back. Done, right? 
this one, I mean, he really, I mean, he he was levitating around the fucking oh, room. Oh, you know, that visual. Just, oh, man. Oh, it was fucking creepy. But just so our listeners know, you know, obviously we're getting into spoiler territory. You guys should have all gone and been a part of this box office smash um, at this point. So just so the listeners know is unlike in the original Candyman films, the Candyman, when he appears, you can only see him in the reflection of mirrors. You cannot see him just in front of the fucking character is all willy nilly. He's in the reflection of the mirrors. There are, you know, different mirrors and things around this art exhibit. So you can see multiple different shots of him, but man, the him floating and then him taking his hook hand and slashing some of the screens that are in the background and, and things like I loved it. The, the best thing that I can compare it to is the Tina death scene from A Nightmare on Elm Street. If- couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. They, they definitely went there in terms of trying to make it iconic. Obviously, like you said earlier, very well put that this movie's different from the original because they're giving us very unlikable characters where we want to see them die. I don't know about Jerrica. She's just got green hair and she's wearing a Joy Division she shirt. She seemed nice. I would probably have a drink with her and tell her you're too young. That's fine. Um, just saying. <laughs> but he says, I don't, He she wants to do the Candyman thing against the mirror. And he's like, I don't want you to die tonight. At least not until we fuck. So not only is dude a giant <laughs> douchebag piece of shit, but he also admits to wanting to fuck dead people. Um yeah, that's true. He and, does. But I, but I love the introduction to the scene, Jeremy, because we see the bee buzzing around and then juxtaposed to that is we see Anthony in front of the mirror at home, like literally sitting there sulking with his beanie on like dark eyes staring into nothingness and the beginning of madness. I think that's the, the greatest thing about this movie is the visuals really connecting with the violence. We get the hook around the neck, the blood spraying like a fountain out of Jerrica's neck fantastical practical gore the shot of Candyman standing in silhouette then ripping through the art scenery the screen was jaw dropping that levitation like you said and then dragging that piece of shit named Clive as he's trying to leave his girlfriend the girl he was just trying to bang in front of the display and splat he's gone dude I think personally my favorite scene in the entire movie yeah, it it was it was it was great. Wasn't my favorite kill in the movie, uh, but I I definitely Ooh, I think okay. it was. A, I'll be interested to I hear your it, favorite then. Yeah, I think it was a strong uh, first kill for sure. And like I said, it was like just like the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Tina scene. But like, imagine in that scene if there was a mirror and you could see Freddy in the mirror. Like that's the difference, right? Is that you could see glimpses of the Candyman. But I kind of kind of dig that a lot of people are fucking mad about that really like, why wasn't yeah oh yeah dude i've read a ton of stuff from horror fans on 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 social media that they're like well, why wasn't the candy man just there like why did he have to only be shown in the mirrors like that's not how the other films were and i mean i i kind of understand that but i i i loved it man because to me it's it's the jaws effect right it's it's almost scarier what you can't see sometimes and i feel like they showed just enough of the Candyman that I was still satisfied. If it was just straight invisible boogeyman, boogie, woogie, woogie, just fucking killing people on screen, then yeah, at some point I'd go, well, this is fucking boring. I'm just seeing like blood going flying and I'm not seeing the killer. But the fact that you see this version of Candyman, which I'll elaborate on what I mean by this version of Candyman later, uh, it was enough for me and I, I was satisfied with it. Um, 
So as you stated, you know, Anthony's at home and he's he's sulking in in, in the mirror and and a descent in, into madness. Something has happened, right? And it was almost like after the events of of what happened to Sherman Fields in the seventies and and then what happened with the Daniel Robitaille Candyman in the nineties, the Candyman had kind of died because because people stopped saying yeah, his name. Not, it, it's all about like how that legend, when it's not talked about, it's kind of dead and buried. Until people start talking about it again. When people start talking about it again, it's brought back to life. Yep. That I mean, Anthony literally resurrected the Candyman by his art exhibit. I mean, he got people saying his name again. I mean, there's even there's even a young girl that is at the art event with her mother that then goes to high school. And, you know, there's a later scene that takes place in high school of the kids that the whole way they know about the Candyman myth is because Anthony's art exhibit, which I think that that's, that's pretty interesting as well. Um, but because that's, well, that's, I mean, you have to think about it. Who would be the most invested in something like this? When we were kids, you said it earlier on in the episode, when we were kids, the whole bloody Mary thing for me, before I even knew about Candyman, you know, say the name in the mirror five times and, and turn around and look in the mirror. Who else, but a bunch of dumb white, rich teenagers again in this movie to do this, um, and that, that line is actually spoken. Who would do that about summoning Candyman? And the next scene sure. is, is literally a bunch of white teenage girls who took the pamphlet at the art at the, the art show, excuse me, to summon him. And it obviously portrays bullying in the scene, a black girl with, by the way, a fucking super rad bad brains patch on her backpack. Yeah, so yeah, how, I noticed how that. How dare you fuck with someone that likes bad brains? Um, and that, that brings me back to what I, what I said earlier about the people in this movie, when they die, they kind of fucking deserve to die, unlike the original. It didn't matter who you were in the original. If you, if you were an obstacle in front of the Candyman's victim, you were getting murdered. I mean, Jeremy, but literally one of the girls in this scene says, wait, I forgot my vape. And then I instantly said, I hope she dies the most brutal fucking death for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> she had like her head shaved with like one earring. I'm like, girl, seriously? She, she they, they were trying to feed us the fact that she's a lesbian. She mentioned vaginas being nice and cuddly uh, in, in one of her lines of dialogue. I was dialogue like, good, and- let's, let's have inclusion. Please, let's do. Yeah, let's, yeah. Let's, let's kill then, everybody, not just straight white men. Let's kill everyone kill equally, right? Everyone. So, you know, this this African-American high schooler comes into the bathroom and all of these white girls, like, are giving her a bunch of shit and, like, kicking and punching the door of the stall that she goes into. And she has her headphones on because she's just trying to escape all the bullshit that she has to deal with day in and day out. But these these girls, they, they say Candyman in the mirror. Jeremy, that, that shot, dude, you know what I'm talking about. From underneath the stalls of the blood dripping... It. Just like I loved it, liquidy thick goo. Oh, I loved it, dude. Beyond I, impressive, I loved it. man. A lot, but you know, again, this this movie is is really it's. I, I feel like it's kind of putting horror fans splitting them right down the middle because I feel like half of the people that saw this movie like fucking loved it and and got what they wanted out of it, and I feel like the other half were just so busy and consumed with trying to compare it to the original that they fucking hated it. So a lot of there was a lot of hate for this scene too because they're like. You didn't even fucking see the Candyman, and I'm like, well, you did in the compact mirror on the floor, which was but very. Other I mean, than that, you're, for, for a visual, I thought was very interesting to it's do. Creepy, yeah. It was it was creepy as shit, man. But uh, you know, the people in this movie when they die, 
they fucking deserve it, man. They deserve it, and I and I and I dug that. So let's jump to to when Anthony, you know, he goes to Cabrini Greens, and you know what's left of the original Cabrini Greens. There's literally just one segment of Cabrini Greens that is not gentrified at this point, and he goes and he's taking pictures of it and he's documenting it when he runs into the adult um, William Burke who was the little boy from the very first scene in the movie. Yeah. And this, now is, as an this, adult. Is, this is how we get the, you know, the visit, the visual physical presentation of Candyman, like presented to us in these very interesting puppet scenes, a very artistic way of presenting the story, which I thought was fantastic. Um, I loved it. I loved it. It was very, very well done. Uh, I really liked it because it, it's how the movie started. It's how the movie ended. And I thought that was a really cool visual interpretation of, of how to tell this story. And this is what like kind of gets him into the mouth of madness, if you will, like throughout the whole movie. And as the movie pushes forward, this is what causes his obsession with this myth. And then of course, as we know, shit hits the fan. Well, I have to ask you, I have to ask you. So he gets stung by a bee when he's taking pictures of Cabrini Green. That's right. right. So that is is really what starts his literal transformation into madness and potentially into becoming something much whole, more than himself. I was bitten by the bug. It's literally a visual yeah. interpretation of that saying, like, you know, in, in terms of like you're researching something or you're interested in a certain subject People say that, oh, you were bitten by the bug in here. It's quite literal. You know, you have the bee flying up and there it is. Stings him. And and so that's what starts his transformation. So this is a new approach to the Candyman mythos is the fact that he gets stung by this bee and it, it starts to transform him. Like, what what do you think the the reasoning behind their decision to do this was? Was it that he flew too close to the sun, that he... He was so obsessed with the Candyman mythos that he starts to become part of the mythos. Like, I mean, it's strange for me. Yeah, you know, we'll we'll get to it later. His his connection to, uh, to the Candyman. But well, honestly, for, I, for I, me, I mean, I I feel like Jeremy to answer that question. It's just a reference to the same way Helen was so obsessed with the story in the original film. And how she wouldn't let it go. Yeah. She, she just got so connected to it and so obsessed with it that eventually it led her down this super dark claustrophobic tube of darkness of this terrifying imagery, this terrifying urban legend. We see it literally here. I mean, there's a scene here when Anthony's starting to begin his physical progression, you know, this transformation, if you will, into what he's going to become by the end of this movie and it's this claustrophobic tube with rain around it. And you're like, oh, shit, dude. Like, that's one of the things that I have a little bit of a problem with the movie is that it's so literal all the time. But I also understand the audience that they're really trying to present to. Um, it, it's just more of the you, same. They're just trying to convey the same themes in a different, more updated way. Obsession. Yeah, I mean. As far as the bee sting, I mean, it starts to rot his hand. It looks like his hand was, like, in a fucking bonfire. Like, it's charred almost. It's infected. Wouldn't you be, I mean, wouldn't it, you be picking at that shit if it looked like it? I know I would. I would have been I'd the be picking, fuck to a hospital. Well, he eventually goes after, like, almost Eventually, body, like, but yeah, dude. I, I'd, like, I'd, be, I'd be picking at that shit, too, like, ripping, you know. I'd probably be biting at that dude, shit when I'm sleeping and 
eating pieces off it was, of it. It was very David Cronenberg, the fly. Oh, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Fucking, it was disgusting to her. Like there were, were points where he was literally picking at it, and the skin was peeling, and people in the audience, you could hear them just go, "Oh." Which I love. You know, so, I love when you when yeah. you hit a nerve. I mean, there's the scene at the end of the movie while we're getting there, you know, where there's like literally a limb removed, and you don't see that oh, in modern horror. It was a good one. You really that don't. Good, you don't see no, that very not in often mainstream horror anymore. No, and you see blood no. just pouring out, and you see like a practical physical prop arm just falling off, and a hook being shoved in. I think, you know, as we get to the the end of this review here, Jeremy. I think the first act is extremely strong in this movie, whether I really love the characters or not. And the second act follows pretty solid. I mean, I think it's, it's also very good. The third act for me is where the movie starts to fail, I guess, in terms of like where it starts to fall apart a little bit where, and we started this review in this whole episode in saying that this is Nia DaCosta's film, but Jordan Peele did have his hand in the screenplay there were three writers. There were, you are correct. There were. But when you look at what Jordan Peele has accomplished in the last five or six years, Get Out is a masterpiece. It's an outright classic. Us almost got there, except for the third act, also failed yep. to portray what he really wanted to envision with what that movie was supposed to be. We get another case of that here, I feel like, where there's a lot of things that are rushed, thrown together, not much impact. And it kind of leaves at least me as an audience member being like, okay, you set it up, right? You didn't really know what to do with it at the end of the story. So I don't know if you feel the same way as I do, but it just felt like a little bit like of a lackluster ending. Yeah. I mean, do the third act. I agree with you a hundred percent. I didn't hate the third act, but there were parts of the third act that I did hate, Uh, you know, not as a whole again, but there were parts of it that I that I did hate for sure. I mean, one, you know, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Vanessa Williams coming back um, as Anne-Marie McCoy from the original film. One of the best like, scenes, find, one of the best scenes in the movie. Oh, so impactful to where it, you know, the fact that they brought her back and she's a legacy character to this franchise. You know, I'm glad she's there and she is one of the best, the absolute best scenes of this this entire movie. Like, dude, I love, I love the part when he finally goes to visit his mom, and he finds out because he had no idea that the baby from the 1992 Candyman that Candyman steals and is going to take into the bonfire that Helen Lyle goes after, he ends up finding out that Anthony finds out that he was the little, he was the baby that the Candyman stole, and that Helen Lyle saved him, which he had absolutely no idea of before. And so he goes to confront his mom, you know, uh, Anne-Marie McCoy, and he he says, you know, you never told me. And she's like, you know, and she you could tell that she knows that he figured it out. And he says, Candyman, and my favorite, my, probably, yeah, definitely my favorite line in the movie. She goes, she claps, she goes, mm-mm, mm-mm, no. Mm-mm. It's, it's, it's been Don't that, that gif that's been. Don't say that. Everyone's using that gif on Twitter, that, that whole. It's mm-mm, so good. Mm-mm. It's. Mm-mm. No, don't say that. But, but once I, I you love that, once you get to that point in, in in the movie and you connect those dots, like I remember talking to you about this pre-show a few days ago, that I immediately knew that's where it was going. Like I think, oh, a, for a sure, quarter of the way through, you're like, oh, yeah. That, I mean, that, in the trailer, when, when you look at the the age bracket and everything and where they're going with it, you know that's what it is. But 
I think for the general movie goer, it probably drops like a bomb. Because when I saw it the first time, people like went, ooh, whoa, when that line was mentioned that he is the baby that was stolen in the first movie. So to me, this this that's that's such an important part and element of Candyman 2021 is is that connection to the original film, right? Which also in and of itself becomes such a hindrance, in my opinion, because there were so many fucking opportunities that they could have done with connecting those dots, right? You know, it could have been a, a thing where the Candyman, when he stole Anthony when Anthony was a child, that the Candyman literally imprinted himself on Anthony, and then it was Anthony's destiny to come back to Cabrini Greens and find him and essentially resurrect the Candyman legacy and then potentially join the Candyman fleet, right? And which is a weird thing because guess what? There's not just one Candyman. There's not just Daniel Robitaille. There's multiple. Right? There's more than one Candyman. Yep. yep. Sherman Fields is a Candyman. So Daniel Robitaille is a Candyman. There is a blurred face Candyman that they don't really discuss a whole lot. I know in the original script there was a little bit more information on him. And then now Anthony is has literally, after the bee sting, started his descent into becoming a candy man, right? So there's so many op I like the fact that there are multiple candy men because it's interesting. Which by it's the way, different. Jeremy, if we were trying to be careful about saying it more than five times, we've each said it like a hundred times in this review, so we're both fucking doomed. So ladies and gentlemen Hopefully you'll be able to hear this review. Like hopefully someone will take it after we die and and actually edit it and and present it to you as listeners because oh, there's my puppy who's falling asleep. My puppy. Well, <laughs> dude, your dog's getting big, man. He's getting um, like be a giant. But yeah, I mean, so dude, they they could have done so <laughs> many fucking things with that, but instead they they kind of shoehorn in like, "Oh, he's the baby from the first one," but then they don't do anything tying it all together, right? At least I don't feel like they did enough for it. And then I'm going to go ahead and, and talk about it now, man. Cat is coming out the bag, man. Let that so, shit out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, yeah. <laughs> Who invited Rob Zombie on the podcast? He's like, yeah. Candyman, what you want? Hey, yeah. It's the candy The candy man. <laughs> So, dude, Coleman Domingo is William Burke. I, I said earlier in the review that I fucking loved this guy. I loved his character. I thought he was fantastic. Oh, man, I, I cannot help myself but to compare him to Dr. Sartain from Halloween Oh, shit, here we go. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, when you hear that name mentioned, you know where it's going. You know where it's going. So... Dr. Sartain in Halloween 2018, right? He was he was Michael's uh, psychiatrist after Dr. Loomis. And up until a point in the movie, he was likable. He was kind of funny in parts. And it seemed like he was just a guy doing his job. Oh, you're the new Loomis. <laughs> what do you mean? I, I am calm. <laughs> Whatever his line was, he's so funny, dude. <laughs> he's, he's so funny, but... uh. Left field in the third act, the, it was like the writers of Halloween 2018, David Gordon Green and, and uh, Danny McBride. Yeah. yeah, it's like they were like, okay, well, how do we get Michael and Lori back together? And they're like, fuck, we'll take the psychiatrist. And all of a sudden, left field will make it to where he's obsessed 
with Michael Myers and bringing Laurie and him together. And it was just so left field that one of the biggest complaints that fans have about Halloween 2018 is that they're like, dude, it's so fucking dumb. There's a hundred other ways that you could have gotten Michael but, and Laurie back together. But from my perspective, I don't give a fuck how you're going to get them there. I'm able to ignore that five minute portion of the movie just to sure. get him there. Whereas here, it feels like when you find out that Burke is like kind of like puppeteering crazy this entire thing you're like oh man this guy's been nice the entire movie he's been like telling the story was... and helping and now he's like he's got brianna all field. tied up and everything and i knew the baby would come back and i'm like okay um honestly to, it, to me it didn't make sense no not me it didn't it make didn't sense. make sense at all and that, that's what really fails for me in terms of the movie overall yeah. because like i said i think the first act is very strong the second act is pretty good uh, you know, that descent into madness, like as we saw in the original movie. But the third act kind of just, it's jumbled, it's thrown together. And then, of course, like, you know, I, I had to say earlier on, the Brianna character, played by Tiana Paris, she's a good actress, but yeah. I, I didn't really like her very much. I didn't really care for her that much. I mean, sure, Anthony throws some mirrors at her um, when he's trying to protect her. <laughs> and, of course, what woman wouldn't walk away from that when a guy is throwing fucking mirrors in a room like, yo, this guy's motherfucking crazy. But at the same time, I didn't really care for her character. So there are some things shoehorned in with that character too. Like her dad killing himself, you know, Troy talking about that how, was... how she, she can't oh. keep running away from that forever and connecting the two things and finding damaged men. And I was like, well, that's kind of like a half-assed portrayal of whatever this character is supposed to be. Cause I don't care enough about that character. You can, you can tell that there was a, draft of that script somewhere For sure. that was a much bigger, much bigger part man that's big, much and bigger it got character. whittled down yeah way more developed way better written because it was unnecessary in this version yeah. for sure i mean honestly you should have just had her be his girlfriend and i hate saying that because she's a female character in a female directed movie but at the same time like why not give her a bigger role make the movie like like i always say this all the time jeremy and you're gonna hear me say this on the show all the time make the movie 10 minutes longer Five minutes longer, give her some development, give me something to care about with her character, because by the end of this movie, when she's kidnapped and she's in the nitty gritty in in the shit here, I don't care about her living or dying. The only thing that she really does that matters, that has any full impact to the end of this movie, is that she says the name five times and finally unleashes him after, you know, again, she viciously stabs Burke to death with the same pen that we saw earlier writing Anthony's notes that is foreshadowed because it's a close-up of said pen. And when the white cops open fire, it says a lot about her movements, though, and her performance. So I'll give her that much in this scene because before doing anything else, she knows she's an African-American woman and she ducks. She hides. Yeah, I mean, dude... William Burke, again, before we get in, into him getting stabbed to death, I mean, he decides that Candyman, like you said earlier, is a necessary evil to fight back against police brutality, against right? Which that, I think against is, the white takeover, gentrification, yeah, the whole thing. I think that's I think that's fucking genius. But what it's I don't theme, like yeah. is that I, what I don't like is that he's trying to create a, a forced narrative. Well, the narrative's already there. Anthony's already becoming the Candyman. He's already into his descent into madness, into joining the league of candy men, right? 
So it could have been a situation where they could have used William Cole to try to save Brianna. Rather than him abducting Brianna, he could have been a he- you know, a hero because up until this point, he was kind of that could have been his path is that he could have shown up after Anthony goes insane, abducts Brianna. Anthony could have uh, you know, you were you mentioned earlier about you know, there's there's a sawing off of a limb in a movie that we don't we don't typically see stuff like that very much in in mainstream horror anymore. So never, almost uh, never. William Burke saws off Anthony's hand and jams a hook into his stub <laughs> and all these things, but he's creating a false narrative and he even calls the cops and he's like, he's here, he's here. The guy that committed all the murders that happened throughout the film is here. Come to this address. Because he wants the police to show up, and he wants the police to kill Anthony, and he wants Anthony to come back as a Candyman to fight back against police brutality. It just, it, none of it makes fucking sense. It, to me, it was lazy writing in the third act. They could have avoided all of that, man. Yeah, 100%. It, that, that's, where it, that's where it falls apart for me, so I agree with you 100% that the third act is womp womp. Yeah, and we're going to close this out real quick here. When those cops open fire... I mean, that's the end of the movie. Um, they kill. They kill Anthony. Well, there's supposed to be. A, there's supposed to be a big payoff here, um, and we just see a bunch of white cops getting slashed at, which could have been cool if it was portrayed a little bit better. If it was developed better visually, uh, I, I don't know. Like, she's sitting in the car, and we're seeing it from a bird's eye view, if you will, when her in the back seat of the the police car, or whatever the SUV. And they're getting slashed and everything. You're like, okay, cool. So Burke's gone. Anthony's there. She says the name five times. And we get a a very evil white cop who's like, what the fuck is that? He gives her two options, which from someone, Jeremy, that watches so many true crime shows and knows true crime and knows the history of how these things work. 100%. This is something that happens all the time where cops are dirty and they're just trying to get their job done real quick. And I'll give you these two options and either of those options are going to incriminate you. And all she does is let me look in the mirror. I'll tell you anything you want to know. She says the name five times. We see all these cops get slaughtered. I am the writing of the walls, the sweet smell of blood, the buzz that echoes the alleyways. And then we see what I would consider personally, Jeremy, one of the most disrespectful moments of the movie. Now, I saw a lot of fans coming out and saying this is the moment that made them excited. For me, not so much. Um, was not necessary. See, for example, ladies and gentlemen, you've seen the movie. You know what I'm talking about. This isn't Nick Castle, right? Who was in a mask and coveralls. This is not like a cool moment where you're like, oh, cool, that's a cameo. Like he's in the scene for one second. Uh, This is the man that physically embodied and created the character as we know today. Like, literally, when you say the name, you think of one person, a performance. And we get him in a split second and then fade to black. The movie ends. Tell everyone. Tell everyone. That's right. So, Jeremy, you tell me, man. I mean, we're horror fans, man. We live this shit every day. Was that a respectful way in terms of like, you know, showing the legacy of what he created with this character? Yeah, so that was not initially what was supposed to be. The only cameo that Tony Todd was supposed to have in the entire film, and in the test screenings, this is exactly what they got, was at the very end when 
Anthony's version of the Candyman is walking around the car. You in the reflection as he passes by was the reflection of all the different Candyman, right? You got the blurred face Candyman. You got Dan, uh, you got Tony Todd's Candyman. You got Daniel Robitaille. You got Sherman Fields, and that just that split second reflection of Tony Todd in the window was supposed to be his only cameo in the entire in the entire film. And I know for a fact that the test screening audience afterwards they said, "Well, what did you think?" In the first cut of the movie, there was hardly any Candyman in the film. I, I know for a fact as well, and we're not going to name drop or anything like that, nope. but. Uh, both of us were kind of privy to some information based on a Hollywood early screening of the movie in which we were told some information uh, like what was this, like two years ago, dude? Um, dude it was a long it was, it was over. It was probably it, close to a year, and, if not longer. And obviously, we both know after watching this movie that reshoots happened, which is a normal for thing sure. for movies. Reshoots are a normal thing for almost every single movie they have in almost literally every single movie. Um, but um so they CGI'd Tony Todd's fucking face. Oh. So in, in the original ending of the movie, it was supposed to be what I'm assuming. Anthony turns around and faces Brianna. Now he's full on. He is the candy. He's man. the candy man. Right. And what this I'm imagining version. is that. Yeah. Yes. What I'm, what I'm imagining is that she probably was like Anthony. And he was like, tell everyone. And then that was going to be the ending, right? And how great would that have been? So, I mean, seriously, been great. though, that, that would have been a perfect ending. Why even? This is my question here. And it did frustrate me. It angered me. My Because I saw this movie twice. I already mentioned it to you. Yep. Because I really wanted to like this movie more than I did. I mean, obviously, we praised a lot of what the movie envelop, like, it developed sure. and what it showed and what we, we got to sure. see from it. But this to me was unnecessary. I mean, either yeah. give him a bigger part, knowing how big of a part of the legacy he is, or don't give him anything. Yep. You know, it was so last minute, like a latched, like a, you know, last ditch effort to like really, I, I, I mean, they literally CGI'd his, they, they literally CGI'd his face on, I assume Yaya's body. And it was, Tell everyone. And that was all. But the reason we got that is because apparently in the test screenings, they were like, dude, how come you couldn't have given Tony Todd more to do? So somewhere, someone in the studio was like, all right, we got to figure something else out. So they probably looked at what they had and were like, what can we do in post to make people happy? And so they probably had Tony Todd come in. And he, you know, I'm sure they got him on camera. And, and then did the voiceover. Tell, tell, tell everyone. And then they just took his face and slapped it on <laughs> Dude, Yaya's how much, body. How much you think they paid him for that? Here's here's 5K. No, they were like, we've got hot dogs. <laughs> Dude, literally. We're here. That table out back, it's full of 12-inch gourmet hot dogs. All the toppings you want. Literally all of them. Did Just one line. All the toppings. Just one line, and then, and just stand in front of the camera. We'll CG it. You don't have to do anything else. We'll limit you back to your hotel. Fine. Are we talking Seven Eleven or Nathan's hot dogs? I don't know why I sound more like the Wishmaster <laughs> than fucking Tony Todd. <laughs> Listen, hey, well, he's he's in Wishmaster, right? So that's true. Th- there it is. As but you wish, ladies and gentlemen, we're gonna get to the end of this. 
Fresh Frights review. Trash it or treasure it. Jeremy, to you first. Here it is. All right. You know, I really loved a lot of this movie. A lot of this movie. It, it fell apart for me in the third act, but it wasn't so devastating that I, I walked away hating the movie. Like, I just said, okay, like, I didn't particularly care for this part, but otherwise I really enjoyed this movie. I'm anxious to see it again. Um, and I was thoroughly entertained, and I had a great time with this movie, and I loved a lot of the new themes and the mythos that was added. Uh, you know, I, I we know for a fact that this movie has already made a bunch of money. It's made it, its budget back, so we know we're going to get a sequel. It's getting a sequel. So I, I cannot wait to see what the sequel is, and that's from a guy that doesn't particularly like the Candyman franchise. Sequel. So so this is that that's from a guy that doesn't particularly like the Candyman franchise and I'm saying that I can't wait for the next one. So I think that ultimately this jo- uh this this film delivered what it was supposed to and I'm going to have to say man I hate to be the guy that treasures everything but I'm sure at some point I'm going to trash something but one day dude, I, we'll pick the right one, day, one, right? One day. I I'm going to treasure this because I want to see it again man and and I loved it and you know I loved parts or most of it I'll say that. Uh I loved most of it and I want a sequel, man. So how could I trash something that I want a sequel to? So well, I, tr- I I treasure it. I can answer that question for you very easily because I do want a sequel as well. But I'm going to trash it. I'm not putting this one on my shelf. Um, I have to champion the movie, though. I mean, in terms of who was behind it, uh, how much effort went into it, the team that was able to make this movie possible, yes. Uh, I treasure you, but the movie itself too jumbled for me. Um, great. There's thing. a lot of it that you liked. Yeah. I mean, but it falls flat. Yeah. I mean, like as a, as a film, it doesn't completely get there for me. And I have to learn to do this new rating scale because I created it. And usually right now with a normal rating scale, this would probably be my lowest passing rating, but no, this is brain stew. And I want to make this harder for everybody uh and that's the whole fun of it so yeah for me it's going to be a trash it i am not going to buy this movie it's not going to be on my shelf but i do appreciate so much of what went into it i appreciate what it's doing for the horror genre i appreciate the talents that were behind this movie yes but you didn't quite get it there and what frustrates me the most here i mean i'm sure you can agree with me is the framework was there the bones were there for a much much better movie had that third act really knocked it out of the park, I'd be sitting here literally coming my fucking pants and actually probably all over my hands. And you'd see it on my face because I'd be not paying attention and wiping it like this as I drank this piece of shit. Sheets, pumpkin, seriously, sheets, don't make the pumpkin pie soda again. You made a mistake. Change it. Do something with it. But I mean, the bones were there. There were so many good things. Solid performances. Make your characters more likable next time. I mean, the fact that they're pretentious art people, I get it. I'm a graphic designer. My wife's a graphic designer. Uh, I've been in that circle so many times in my life, but make them a little bit more likable, a little more relatable. There it is. You know, it's just really simple things you could slightly change and make a much better movie and add 10 to 15 minutes onto the movie and give more development for both of our main characters 
Anthony and Brianna because there's so much more that we could have seen from them and Burke as well. But the visuals were perfect. The kills were awesome. But also, let's face it, Jeremy, and I'm going to ask you this now before we close up the show. I didn't think this movie was scary at all. We watched The Night House last week and reviewed that, and right. I thought that movie was terrifying. It, it was, I will say this, Candyman was creepy, but it was not scary. It had a creepy atmosphere, some creepy imagery. Put it this way, dude. Sherman Fields is nightmare fuel. Oh, for sure. For sure. Every time you see Anthony looking in the mirror and seeing him back, it's ter- when, he, when, he's in his, when he's at that art critic's apartment, and he's looking yeah, yeah, in the yeah. mirror, and she's coming out from the bathroom. What the, was she trying to, like, fuck him or something in that scene? Like, I'm going to come in changing something more comfortable. When she says, I'm going to the bathroom, he's like, now is as good a time as ever. I'm like, wait, why is he saying that? Does she have to take, like, a giant dump or something? I I don't know. Um, yeah. When you see him in the background, it's, it's, it's definitely nightmare fuel, but... Overall, the movie was not scary. Great atmosphere, great visuals. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. I trashed it. Jeremy, once again, treasured it. But that is it for this episode of Brain Stew, a Fresh Frights review. Thank you so much for listening. Seriously, we love you beyond words for taking the time to listen to us jabber on about movies. And if you like what you hear, we would literally get down on our knees and pray to you and thank you for forgiveness for leaving us a five-star iTunes review. Every single one of those that we get helps us reach more amazing listeners like yourself. Tell everyone about us. Seriously post about Tell us. everyone. There it is. You know, when you're listening to us, if you're, if you're on Instagram, post that shit in your story. If you're on Twitter, tag us. That's literally the way to do it in terms of getting our name out there. We're under the Epic Film Guys banner, but we are officially Brain Stew. So thank you so, so much for listening. We really greatly appreciate it. And all of our reviews will be available on every single platform, Spotify, iTunes, you name it. We're literally everywhere. But, you know, that's the way it is. Until next time, Jeremy... You did a guest spot recently on Kellen's Daddy Talk Show. I did. It was so much fucking fun. I've known I've known Kellen for years, and uh, I love I love his his podcast. So when he he invited me on, we we had an absolute blast. And you talked absolute about blast. all of the Candyman movies, right? All of the Candyman movies. So definitely go over and check out Kellen's Petty Talk Show oh. and check out that. Candyman franchise review. I'm going to put the, uh, we, the link to that in the show notes. So if you're looking at this on our official site, you're going to see that link. So go and check that out. And Jeremy, you got to get in there in our group, man, and formally introduce yourself. I definitely will. I, did, I had a busy, busy weekend, but uh, yeah, that post is definitely coming. I'd, I'd love to introduce myself properly to the Epic Film Guys fanatics and, of course, new fans of Brain stew! Yeah, brain stew, baby. So until next time, I'm Justin. And I am Jeremy. And remember to... Keep it creepy. Oh, yeah, baby. Brain stew!